everybody. This is ETS on the Grid. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. My co-host, Erin Hardick, is out this week, but she'll be back, uh, she'll be back soon to rejoin, to rejoin the show. I hope she enjoyed her vacation. Uh, but I've got two ladies here that I'm really excited to, to talk about in the meantime. First, we have a senior fellow for the Center for International Governance Innovation, Bianca Wiley. Bianca, thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. And we have the Smart City Coordinator for the City of San Antonio, Emily Royal. Emily, how's it going? It's going great. Hi, Dylan. Now, we're really excited to have you on the show uh, because you you two kind of had a, had a star-making role at last year's City of the Future. Um, talking about uh, talking about data rights, data, data privacy, and you're you're coming back for an encore uh, next week <laughs> in San Antonio at our City of the Future 2020 uh, with a t- talk with a fireside chat titled "Policies for the Connected Community," um, and so we're really we're really excited to hear about that. And but I feel like there's just not there's just not enough time in one half hour fireside chat to extract all the all the genius out of you two. So uh, we're, we're going to have you here on the podcast to talk a little bit more about uh, data, the big, the big thing that everyone's talking about in energy as things become more digitized. So uh, after your talk last year, one of the biggest takeaways was the need for a social contract when it comes to data or, or a data bill of rights, as you as you as you put it. So uh, I'm going to take a step back here to allow you to go deeper into this topic. But it seems like a good place to start. Bianca, can you kick us off expounding upon that concept of the data bill of rights? Certainly. And I think, you know, bill of rights, social contract these are ideas that we were grabbing at um, likely because we're, we're, we're trying to have a pretty hard conversation. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? Yes, we have data. Yes, we're dealing with a lot of it. Uh, yes, times are changing and technology is here in different ways. And, you know, we're building it and it's ours to respond to. Um, but the world is not starting in the last decade or two, right? And so I think what the reason we were thinking about a data bill of rights or thinking about the, the social contract um, is really about accountability, relationships, sort of assigning rights, assigning responsibilities, and how does that work between people, residents, you know, the private sector, and and the government, and what are the relationships there? What are the assumptions? Where are old ideas not really carrying over into the sort of digital age? And so what we talked about uh, last year, and it's so nice to get to revisit this, is do we need to rethink some of these things, given you know, how much data is out there, how many different ways you know, we interact with technologies in cities? And uh, th- those were two constructs that we sort of walked through. It's like, if I'm a resident, do I have a certain set of rights, you know, in terms of how my data is used that should be basically inalienable? You know, like, is, is there stuff that just should not be up for grabs or discussion or sign off or consent? It's just you walk around in the city. This is the baseline. Right. So is that a thing we should be thinking about in terms of a data bill of rights? And then the other thing around the social contract is, you know, in terms of the old, I'll, I'll talk about a census for a minute. The reason that governments, one of the reasons governments have census is they have data, you know, residents give data to governments and governments use that data um, in part to inform how they provide goods, you know, services, public services, 
Um, and so there's sort of an understood trade there, right? It's like, I will give this to you, you will return this to me, and we both understand the value of that. We understand the trade-offs. You know, you know more about me and you need to in order to provide X, Y, or Z. And so I think we're really, we're talking about, okay, we've got both of those things for a long time. What does this look like now? And how do we have to think about these things differently, if at all, with data? Absolutely. Um, so it, it is really cool to be able to pick up the cadence of this conversation a year later, because so much has happened in just a year, uh, you know, in the landscape when it comes to um, data, the commercialization of new technologies, things like facial recognition, that all have real implications for how people experience urban environments and participate in urban environments. And I love you bringing up the census, Bianca, um, because it's such a great example of, a, of an existing social contract with government about data. And why that social contract is in place is because the data has a public value that is understood for everyone. It directly contributes to how the government makes choices about how it spends money on programs that benefit people. So there's an interesting um, dynamic there that's established as a precedent that I think we can build off of when we explore how new technologies in public space generate emerging data sets that maybe we didn't anticipate before. And so, you know, for governments, we're continuously asking ourselves the question as more and more private sector innovations infiltrate government services and public environments, how do we create those social contracts of the future? And I'm hoping, you know, part of our conversation building off of last time can explore what are the toolkits that we actually have? What are the tools that governments have, that the private sector has? Um, to begin to construct and kind of build brick by brick what that contract looks like um, as mm -hmm. we move forward into this digital future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think just to riff on that for a minute, um, with, with the census, and I, I, I believe the United States is like heading into a census moment. Um, maybe That's it's right. early, maybe it's because I'm, you know, talking to librarians, so I know that they're engaged in making sure people are able to fill in the census. Um, but I think census is another interesting place to think about the fact that like, if you're not counted in the census, it can be to your detriment, right? So there's this idea around like making sure that if you're counted and known to be there and, you know, and, and the qualities of, of your life in relation to where you live and, and your demographic and the rest of it, like it's important that that data um, is created, right? And it's it, that it's created, captured, and used when government's making decisions. So that's one of this this one of these places where there's strong incentive to share data. And then when you think about some of this stuff um, more in a digital, like let's move into the city and take that idea. Um, it's this this idea that in cities, a lot of the way city technologies are being sold, both to governments and to the public, is that there's some great amount of public good or public value in the collection of data in a city. And I think one of these major pieces, and this would kind of ties into your toolkit uh, question as well, um, is how much marginal value are we actually getting from collecting so much more data? Because I think this is a really important place that we need to dig in and make sure that there's not just this like, yeah, there's so much data and that's going to bring so many benefits. Um, because from my experience, kind of 10 years into the smart city space, I don't think that's true that there's that much, you know, and I think really getting clear on where is their marginal value and what are the trade-offs related to that. So I just want to make totally. sure that like one of the reasons that we need to talk about all this data stuff and why there's been, you know, challenges from public too is 
the trade-offs are really, you know, complex. And we, I, I just would challenge this narrative that all of this extra data collection is suddenly improving, you know, quality of life for everybody equally in cities, because I don't think that's the case. So I think in this year, following our first conversation, it's like, okay, where is this really worth doing more data collection? And where is that just building liability and risk that we don't need? I think that's one of the questions we need to ask ourselves with every instance of data collection. Yeah, um, I wanted to build off of this idea about, um, you know, how much marginal value there is. There's the question of how much. And there's also the question that we're dealing with right now in our office of for who? Who yes. is getting this value? Yes. yes. And, you know, underpinning uh, the how much question and the for who question is, you know, who has access to being able to really capitalize on that value? And if it's not a majority of our residents, how can we get them up to speed and include them, right, the digital inclusion movement, um, to be able to access that value? Um, that's an education piece. That's like a workforce development piece. Um, it's an access piece. Um, so all of that's rolled one. And that's like a really huge problem um, that I think a lot of governments are facing is, you know, really leveling the playing field for our community about who can access the value, the marginal value um, that comes from uh, data collection uh, and data generation, right, especially in cities. That's yeah, a, so a topic much. that's super on my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so much. And I am going to um, make sure we get back to other examples beyond facial recognition. But I do want to say something that builds on that because we're doing the thing. <laughs> so you did that, you know, I did that for you. You're doing yeah. it for me, um, which is when you flip it around, you know, the conversation of marginal harm, additional harm. And I think disproportionate harm because something like is something that is so true about data and its collection and use is that. For some people, collection, use, tracking, you know, knowledge of where someone is, knowledge of their activities is fine because their, their lifestyle, whether it's, you know, there's kind of a, um, a really nice dichotomy of, um, of thinking about, uh, which uh, Dr. Chris Gilliard talks about as like luxury surveillance, which is sort of like if you're rich and you have consumer products and there's a whole bunch more data collected about you and that's a you know, a different paradigm than government in some instance, but that's sort of like you're deciding to do that because that's a thing you want and you're comfortable with all of, you know, what the, what the potential harms of those things might be, or maybe you can afford them or, you know, they're, they're not a bother to you. And then you think about other, you know, other people in different stations of life who all of that additional data would only be used to marginalize them further, whether through consumer markets or potentially by state or state agencies, you know, or city. Um, and so I think this idea that it's, you know, just just to keep keep riffing on what you're saying, it's like marginal value and for who, and then you know, harm and disproportionately mm -hmm. for whom, right? And so both of those, like both of those hold, yes. both of those hold, and are challenging because that's also introduced this other paradigm here, which I think is so important to manage, which is like what is consumer and product stuff versus what is, and I want to ground us back in there as I, you know, turn it back to you for other examples, for, and, you know, versus what is public asset, public infrastructure stuff, right? Uh, you know, access to energy data, transportation data, water use, right? Like those get more down a different path. Um, but I think that's why in 2020, it's critical that we get really specific when we talk about data in a particular use. And so it's, it's a nice reminder yes. for us right now, if we're ever going off track into stuff that's not really keeping that at the heart, um, that's not helpful. So we need to make sure we're talking in specifics. So specific in cities, facial recognition, and you were going to say you had a few others maybe to add in here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, beyond facial recognition, it's not all about surveillance um, and surveillance capabilities, but there's definitely micro mobility. The whole e-scooter thing has created a lot of new transportation data sets, which has actually led to some interesting case studies in how do we standardize uh, and create standards uh, from the city's point of view about what kind of micro mobility data or just data in general do we really want to see or that we think is useful. Um, so to kind of to kind of build out further what we mean when we talk specifics around you know creating that social contract, I think one of the first steps is really identifying um, what data sets are valuable to cities and are valuable to communities. What's the process for establishing that, and then how do you actually codify that in terms in technology terms? How do you build APIs or data classification standards or standards? that kind of uh, force the private sector to shape and change you know, the types of data sets that they offer when they're procured right in a public space environment. E-scooters yeah. is a really great example of that. Um, and just to sort of spout off some other examples, um, at least in the city of San Antonio right now, our uh, smart streetlight RFP is gonna come online uh, in March. So pretty soon here, we're gonna be uh, deploying three pilots in three innovation zones in our community. Um, that basically are streetlights with additional sensor applications that run off the internet. Um, and those are air quality, parking sensing, temperature sensing, really just collecting environmental data, um, which is non-sensitive. And so there's some cool opportunities there when we think about how do we address, you know, our climate goals, for example, as a city. Um, sensors on city vehicles is a new project that we're exploring as well um, as generating data. So for this, it's, you know, our garbage trucks, they cover like 7 million miles a year. So how do we, if we put sensors onto those trucks that, you know, help detect things like potholes or any other types of things, how do we generate new data sets, um, you know, that take advantage of an existing route that people run through in our city on a daily basis to deliver a service? So some interesting opportunities there, some privacy concerns there as well. That makes me think about the whole ring doorbell thing yeah, that's going on right now. Yeah. Right. So yeah. really, I mean, the tangible examples, I think, are endless. And it's really intimidating to just wrap your head around how to catch up with these. Yeah. And I do think that like that e-scooter example is a really good one um, because you have and this happens in mobility a lot. I think you get products introduced into the market. This happened over years. And it through through the nature of what they are and they're digital, I mean, you can even take this to Uber, right? It's like there's there's intense data collection happening. And what happens over time is the city gets to this point, this is where cities are at and they're making choices now that I'm not always feeling comfortable with, is they're basically saying, you have all of that data. You know what? We want it. And that's a different, you know, that's sort of like an ante up rather than a like, what is the floor supposed to be? And I think this is where cities really have to come out strong and to make sure that data minimization is really there, not just like you have all that data now we need it too, which is kind of the direction we're going right now, which I think is a really bad precedent because you're basically inheriting data hoovering um, because a private company brought that into a space, you know, and I don't think that's a good precedent, but it's definitely where things are going. Because when you talk about what's the marginal value of that, some of that data, um, you get transportation planners and city officials saying, well, this is critical for us to do, you know, our transportation planning because we need this. Um, and that's where you really need to get into conversations about, well, 
is this really right? Like, it's like, how much of this do you really need? How much of this do you not need? And what is it doing for the transportation planning space? And I wish I was hearing more from some of the transportation planners, for example. You know, like, I feel like sometimes these conversations are being held too much through almost like a technology um, lens instead of like through a transportation lens, maybe just more the public discourse. I know this is happening within cities that transportation's at the table, um, but I just think it's important to hear more from them, you know, in public as to like, if this is really good and really helps us, you know, get around the city better, which we want, uh, let us know how it's doing that and let us know what the trade-offs are. Um, so that's that e-scooter one is interesting because this public-private stuff, it just is does not happen independent of each other, right? It's like one sets precedent and then you've got cities either deciding to like meet that level or maybe take a different path. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, and, you know, I think it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, those transportation planners, those urban planners, sometimes they don't even know what's possible until the, the technology is developed to show it. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, suddenly it's like, oh, we can do that. Oh, we need that. We, you know, we got to buy right. that or we have to procure that. Right. Yeah. And, and it's almost like it should be the other way around where it's kind of like transportation planners saying, here's what we need you know, and, and then sort of filtering it through what those existing needs are yeah. or having more of a collaborative conversation, you know, where they learn like, okay, here's what's possible. How do we walk that back or how do we expand upon that? You know, what are those kind of deliberate conversations look like? Yeah. And you, you said something else that I want to riff on, which brings us to our toolkit. When you said that these smart streetlights um, have three sort of non, non-sensitive data collection um, areas and like climate and using this stuff for climate is is one opportunity. And I think that is one of these areas where I really want us to get evidence-based in cities because when I watch the narratives right now, like it's like, let's use smart cities and big data to further the SDGs. You know, I just heard this at the United Nations World Urban Forum last week. I heard it said again. And I think it's like, there's a really important point in time to separate real defensible rationale for especially like energy is a great example of that right like like if this is if this is going to accomplish things for climate that's really important but you can't greenwash either right and so i'm mildly nervous about the amount of like assumption that just layer data everywhere and we're going to suddenly have you know address the climate crisis because fundamentally what I struggle with even like philosophically is how do you reintroduce non-novel solutions for climate? Like don't drive in some of the places where there's great infrastructure in lots of places and cities, people have to drive. So we should be thinking about investing in infrastructures to resolve some of those issues. And that is not a technology investment at all. And I'm, like I said, mildly nervous about the fact that some of those core infrastructural sort of asset investments that need to be made that are non-novel are not going to get made. And then you get everybody feeling like they're busy because they're, you know, sprinkling data over things and saying, you know, here we go on, on resolving climate issues. So that's a, that's a continual concern of mine. And I feel like it's ramping up right now because again, I do not think that the value of data collection for energy or other area, like energy is particularly related to climate stuff. Um, But at the same time, this is not, you know, we can't, we need to talk about whether marginal improvement in energy consumption is, is fine in order to trade like a full surveillance, you know, surveillance city. 
like, I don't think that's a trade-off that's fair for everybody. And I don't think you should be made to feel that, you know, challenging that is, is, is wrong because it's not when you have other options, right? So I think that's like very much a 2020, 2021 conversation that we need to put to the forefront is like marginal value and impacts of how this data, you know, affects um, climate plan and also what else could be done. Um, do you hear more and more of the sort of suggestion around data and climate, Emily? Like, because I'm hearing it a lot. Yeah, I, I do hear it. And I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, the, the possibility of leveraging climate, you know, as, as uh, an issue that might further technologies that we don't necessarily need to invest in. I think that's a, a real challenge. I think in San Antonio, you know, our streetlight um, project is responding to, and actually it might be a cool idea to expand a little bit on, on the process that we built as a potential model. Um, our use cases for the streetlights came from a survey that we did of our residents in our innovation zones a year ago. Uh, and then you know, additional community conversations as well. And what we learned from folks is that environmental quality was a, a real concern in our downtown area in particular, because we just uh, got a poor ozone rating. We've had our ozone rating be pretty clear for decades. Uh, and then just this, um, in 2018, our ozone rating you know, went down into a, a danger zone, according to the EPA. So we wanted to kind of identify how we can you know, collect data and understand like, where that problem is happening. Same thing with parking, you know, it comes from a, a concern about traffic congestion in our downtown and not being able to find viable parking. Mm -hmm. But collecting the data about these things, you know, it, it really is the, just the foundation. It's an, inter, it's an informational tool. It's not the solution. And I think right. where we get right. kind of wrapped up in our investments is, oh, we're, we're putting a technology in public space that's going to collect data as though that's the solution to the problem. Yes. It's not, yes. right? Like yes. having beacons yes. that collect is sensor data is, is not gonna be a solution to changing our ozone quality. It's not gonna be a solution to, to improving our parking conditions. It can help, but we have to be really, I think, realistic about what those investments mean and what they're capable of contributing while acknowledging at the same time, we're building a, a prototype data governance model, which is another, you know, layer to this project that I think is sometimes overlooked and really important is we're kind of trying to figure out what does that data governance process look like for our community? Does it start community first? Is it something where we just procure these sensors, put them out there and then, you know, lessons learned, let's see what happens, right? So we're building that on the back end at the same time. And the front lines of doing that is slow and hard lots of conversations mm -hmm. it can be you know mm -hmm. like the reality of doing that is not the same as some of the the flashy media articles that come out about smart street lights right yeah and i just want to um plug a, a piece that dan hill wrote about digital twins like this sort of cities where you have all this data to kind of like model what's going on in real time um, kind of like, you know, SimCity style. And um, it's really good because it kind of points to what you're talking about. You know, it's, it's, it's part, having that kind of data is part of something, <laughs> but it's not the whole thing. And it's not, it's not the thing it, itself, so. right? No, yeah. no, but it's incredible to be this far down the road and to hear it being sold, discussed, pitched, understood as like, that will be, you know, and then we're fine, you know, like once we just have that happening. So it's, yeah, it's really, really important right. to get that. Yeah, and that's, that 
My concern like that you know, once the trend wave passes about the possibility of collecting data in these environments, you know, then what? We have we'll have an infrastructure that we're gonna have to maintain. You know, there's there's a right. whole like maintenance part yep. of this as well. Like yep. how do we decide that those data streams become irrelevant? When do we discover new streams that are more impactful when we're trying to measure um, problems in our community like ozone quality, right? So uh, the, the fluidity or the flexibility of the solutions, I think, still remains to be seen. Yeah, and I think that that kind of points to this privacy versus privatization split or conversation or whatever we want to call it. But, you know, I think to date and a lot of last year and a lot of, you know, the, the, the last couple of years, a lot of the public discourse around concerns with data were around privacy for good reason. And that's a whole, like, there's a lot there. But um, one of the things that for me, I'm always trying to say is like, it's not just privacy, it's privatization. And I think this is a place where when we talk about where cities are relatively strong um, and should be leaning into this fact is that we have a pretty significant history now of governments purchasing technologies and then having to pay the maintenance and the legacy, you know, on legacy infrastructures. And I think that cities are, you know, pretty well positioned to start getting better at asking the question, like, is this a good use of money? And I think like that muscle is is decently strong in a lot of governments because it's always had to be, right? Now you may not, you could look at that cynically and say, yeah, okay, well, I can show you some places where, you know, where, without that, that didn't work out. But a lot of the times with governments, as we know, when things work well, no one knows. And so I know there have been a lot of things that have not been purchased because when that analysis was done, it was unclear. And so I think this is one of these opportunity spaces to say, um, is the marginal value of this product and all the years we're going to have to pay for, you know, for maintenance and the rest of it worth it for residents? And that's a different conversation than one around privacy. And I think it's one that we need to help governments have. Um, this has always been why it's so important to build the technical capacity up within governments, also to define what vendors you know, what requirements vendors have to meet in order to participate in this sort of economy of the smart city rather than just buying what is brought. And so as part of, you know, in my career at one point in time, I was a product manager. You know, I worked with software developers and we made things. And it's sort of like, how do we get governments to take that power, which is sitting there, which is to say, you're not just a buyer, you're, you're, you know, like you're not just a taker. You're like, you're the rule maker here. You're, you're the one who can say, these are the things this thing has to do. And if you can't meet those rules and it doesn't operate the way that the residents in the city wants it to work, we're not buying it. You know, like to me, this is this shift. And I think that's this big opportunity in governments is, is to actually exert the public purse in a direction that's informed by what residents want. And I think that's like really gets us into specific um, procurements or purchases where you can talk about these things at, a, you know, at a product or service level which helps too. And I don't know, are you seeing encouragement in sort of the direction? Or like, are you encouraged, I guess, <laughs> Emily? And like how that's, I mean, San Antonio, obviously this work you're doing and we can talk about like standards and, you know, the, some of the pieces of that toolkit, I think for governments to exert, you know, on our behalf and with us as residents, what we want, but like, how would you, how would you sort of respond to some of those pieces there? Yeah. Uh, well, I love what you said about, um, you know, cities being the steward of the public purse, I, I feel like that is the definition in a way, we're getting closer to a definition of what the social contract actually means in tangible terms. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, you know, 
that is also the justification for why procurement is the way that it is. It is full of red tape. It's really, really hard, um, you know, to leverage a procurement model in an innovative space. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the ways that, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged is by seeing uh, offices like ours try to explore how we can leverage procurement to actually help build our startup community to where we're actually thinking less about, you know, these huge vendors that are out there that are, you know, want to come and, and procure, I mean, um, sell us, you know, massive technologies. How do we actually think about government as an arm that helps stimulate and develop the local economy as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have a pretty cool program that does that right now um, called CivTech SA. And what we do in this program is we basically identify technology challenges in our city departments. And then um, we, through a procurement process, have a residency with startups where they can embed um, into our city departments and work with them for 16 weeks as the quote unquote interview Uh part of the RFP process. Uh Um, And then when they come out, you know, they have created a customized technology They've done it um, ultimately for free as part of this interview process. And they've also positioned themselves um, to be contracted, um, you know, in the future uh, as, as one of those vendors of choice for the city of San Antonio. But they're local and they know us. And so it's like creating this kind of local ecosystem around procurement that stimulates our local economy. Mm-hmm. I, and I have seen that working in practice and I've seen it now we started to spin it up where we're realizing that you know some of the the teams that develop technology solutions in our community they're not LLCs so we've created like a new layer now as an incubator which we're calling the CivTech um, incubator mm-hmm. um, that actually brings in teams of either students or any you know other groups we've seen be really successful in these competitions and teach them how to be a business. And so we're using, you know, public dollars to stimulate these local startups to actually be able to deliver technology solutions that we know and trust because we've been there from this like point of inception. I think yeah. that's pretty cool to kind of transform, you know, what the power of the public purse really means for government and like what are some different roles that government can play, um, you know, beyond just being the recipient of the technology, right? Totally. And I think that that is like there's opportunity and there's challenge in, in there. And I think the the opportunity to get to something that we talked a bit about last year and I think we'll get to talk about this year is like moving from high level like we want these things. We want, you know, we want a city for all. We want inclusivity. We want, you know, there's a lot of like smart city principles that sound great and no one would really disagree with them. Um, but then in practice, it's it's not specific enough to actually like hold cities accountable for like what the experience of their residents, you know, is. And so I think one of the opportunities I would hear in this work you're doing with this, with the incubator is like that you can sort of instantiate like more specific ways to understand what your responsibilities are, you know, to residents and for residents 
um, when those technologies are being thought about, right? So you can actually bring it into a more specific space. Like it's it's loose, but that's what I mean, like opportunity challenge kind of thing is that it's sort of like really letting someone in close in terms of a startup or in terms of a potential vendor. Um, and as long as the direction is coming, you know, I think I see that as an opportunity to get away from this sort of gen generic abstract stuff and move it into a specific use case. Like, is that happening? Like, are you able to start to say like, hey, in this particular instance, this would be something residents would be concerned about. So let's like hide that off and really talk about it and try to tackle it. You know, like maybe if it's like a tracking situation, like, you know, data use, and then there's a surveillance element to it. Like, are you able to like start wrangling with, with details and, and sort of in the weeds in these cases? Yes, absolutely. I, I think, you know, any one of these challenges that we issue and we basically make them public and we say, look, the, the city ha is encountering this problem think like one of the challenges this year is um, uh, how do we track um, the you know carbon usage of uh, aging or old historic buildings something like that like here's this problem you know how do we work with our community to find solutions and do that through an open and transparent process something that you said last year I think in our conversation was how messy this process is and that that's okay yeah. because it really is and yeah. I, think, I think the challenge with city government is we keep we we have this sort of um, deflated confidence and as a result of that <laughs> we feel like we need to have the narrative polished and perfect mm -hmm. um, you know right and and I think you know with programs like SIPTEC SA we've kind of embraced the messiness of that yeah, a little bit so more good. and it's opened so ourselves up yeah that's democracy right that's that's right. it i feel like yeah. we're just we're, we're wrecking the and governments don't realize that by trying to control they actually break the the the, the opportunity yeah. to, to build trust because it's and just like don't pretend you've got this none of us have got this like we got to do this yes. together yeah and you know what like in this emerging space i mean for the Office of Innovation, working in with new ideas and new technologies, it's impossible for us to say, you know, we've got this because the landscape is constantly changing. Yeah. And, it, and it's evolving. No one's got it. No one around the world has got it. So, no. Yeah. So, so, so stop. Like you'd think you're in enough company that you could just let it go with this. But at this point, but I've been seeing like two years of stalling and it's sort of like, and, and I think one of the reasons that there's this, that this is so fraught with governments, city governments too, and you're doing a good example of like how to try to use it productively is this pressure to be like a data, you know, like an innovation economy or a data nation or, you know, whatever, like artificial intelligence pushing on it too. Um, you know, that, that like that this sort of idea that you need to be doing this stuff and you don't want to impede innovation. Um, but then on the other side, like knowing that we have to figure out how we're creating baselines and floors uh, for safety and for, you know, access and to make sure we have inclusive cities. So there's this ongoing tension there, too, which is a d totally different yeah. track of it. But it's 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 creates like it's really challenging. And I think um, a different paradigm, in addition to privatization that I've been thinking about uh, lately is consumer protection, um, because, you know, just just to, I think this is a good illustration of complexity. So. One of the things that I think about with safety in cities or, you know, like how do we pull on history is like in our physical infrastructures, we use standards to make sure that 
ceilings don't fall, bridges don't break, you know, like that, that things are structurally sound so that the public can use them, right? So we've been there in the built environment. And so part of me was thinking, well, shouldn't we be able to, and this is not my, like lots of people think this, shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be able to think about like a physical, like we've got physical safety and standards. Should we be able to create digital infrastructure that is safe, right? Using standards so that when you go on the internet or when you walk around the city, um, you're not having to think, it's not like you read, you know, 20 pages and then make a decision if you go into a building or not, you know, like you don't do that in real life. So there's like, we shouldn't be doing that on the internet all the time is like trying to navigate all this like overly complicated stuff in terms of service. Um, but the problem with this analogy, it kind of holds, you're like, yes, we should have faith, you know, safe digital infrastructure is that safety is not binary in the ways that it is in the physical world, right? Like if you plug a toaster in and it doesn't go on fire, great and if it does you've got a problem and everybody would get burned you know the same way if the toaster went on fire whereas like what safety looks like in in the digital space is not the same it's not binary you know it's sort of a spectrum of like safe and tolerant and like in that harm it can be experienced disproportionately which is what i think we see in cities so you know like i think that's just a good example of the complexity we're dealing with is like we've always had regimes like consumer protection and standards to make sure that we have safety, but then like that only, you know, you can't drag that into the digital exactly, right? Like there's things we are pulling on and I know you talked about standards, so I wanted you to riff on that a bit, but like just, I, I think that's a good, good illustration of something where it's like, yep, we've kind of figured this out, but this doesn't map properly, you know? Like it's just one of these cases where you're like, we, we shouldn't be inventing from zero, but all of what we've had before does not port you know, into, into the, um, into the digital so easily. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I love that idea that the safety is a spectrum A really excellent illustration of that, that I've came, come across recently is a browser plugin you can install called terms of service did not read. Mm -hmm. And they classify every website that you go to and on a gradient, you know, of A through F in terms of their privacy policies. Uh, and their user agreements. And then they give you like a little box that pops up that kind of gives you some major highlights of those agreements. And what's interesting about it is just like you said, you know, some things are really safe and some things aren't. So, you know, for example, you know, anything that you publish to Twitter may be, uh, you know, your uh, um, copyrighted by Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, so it's like not your content, but at the same time, uh, you know, they have some really excellent privacy policies in place to protect uh, your identity online, right? So there's, it's always like a mixed bag and it's really hard to decipher, determine in a digital space. Uh, and even more so as the digital infrastructure infiltrates the physical reality mm -hmm. that we experience, right? Like mm -hmm. it's really hard to determine a, a one size fits all safety procedure. Right. But this is also where. Solution. Right. And, and the one side, and I think what like to me where cities and institutions need to be stepping up like right now is that we're not going to get to one size fits all, but we certainly have gone way over the what's appropriate for letting consumers or residents and let's turn it around residents first in a city have to think about individual choices like that. The whole point of the institutions are that you, you, you set floors, you know, like you set, like, this is a reasonable floor. And in this sort of in, in, in an environment that is understood well by everybody, you're not making individual choices all the time. Like you're not supposed to let people 
make a choice that would harm themselves. Like once institutions have allowed people to do that, and I would argue they have right now, like this is the paradigm we live in right now, is institutions are not extending their protections adequately to people. And so I think this is where we're like right on back to the social contract. It is the responsibility of the institution and the government should be stepping up right now and saying, you know what, up to here, no one is allowed to have that choice because this choice is like not, it's just not on, like we're not doing this. <laughs> and so I think we need to establish some of these like red lines or like edges um, for some of these things. Because I think what technology has, has really put on people is that everything has become like, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You don't want to do it, but it doesn't work like that, right? Because when you make a choice, you still impact me. Like it doesn't get contained to the individual, particularly in our public spaces. So I just, for me, this is, this is such a great moment for cities to like get in there and exert what the institutional role is. Um, but then you've got that tension with like not wanting to get in the way of industry. And I just want to tell a quick story about that because I think governments are, are misunderstanding their role in some of these innovation ecosystems. Because um, my colleague of mine, his name's Tim Abrey, um, he told me a story about Formula One which was like when, and I'm going to get a bit of this wrong. I wish he could tell it'd be better. But basically when Formula One started, it was a free for all. It was like fast as you can go at, at any cost and people started to die. And then Formula One was like, okay, we're not doing that. Let's set some rules. And then what happened was Formula One as an industry innovated within the boundaries, you know, and that is what people do. This is what business people do. Like they need clear rules around what the environment is and then they can innovate <laughs> and then it becomes a competition to innovate within those constraints. And I think that's the thing that government is just like missing its job on, which is like, just say what the rules are. Like, that's not going to kill industry. That's going to give industry direction. And that's been like, for me, a really interesting thing from last year is like working more and more with industry. And to me, realizing they're not getting the guidance they need either, which is bad. So I don't know how, you, like, I think you in San Antonio, you sound like you're working at that very, very specifically. But I think generally speaking, this is like, it's like, you know, it's like, come on, like, just, <laughs> it may feel counterintuitive to just set the rules. But once you set the rules, all the other things can happen still, you know, like, it's just sort of like yeah. doing nothing is the problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've, that's why I've admired a lot of uh, some of the recent policies and ordinances that come out of cities like Seattle you know, they have their uh, mm -hmm. surveillance ordinance that came out mm -hmm. that really set some rules. And in a way, you know, the, the municipal governments in the United States are kind of charged with this. One, because so many of these technologies impact our public spaces and our urban spaces. But secondly, because we're still, still a year later, Bianca, <laughs> after our previous conversation, we uh, are operating continuously in this vacuum uh, at the federal and state level. Um, of setting those rules, right? And so in the absence of that, you know, city governments are trying to leverage the tools that we have historically to kind of create those rules in our environments, uh, which includes things like ordinances or policies, you know, but there are some real physical boundaries. So it's almost like you can create an oasis of, you know, anti-surveillance policy in an ocean where it doesn't matter. And so how do you really set those boundaries, make those protections viable for people? And then how does industry respond to that? Because, you know, these technologies are fluid. They transcend boundaries. So that's a question for us is, 
you know, even if we did go through the effort to put this ordinance in place or, you know, a policy in place, what impact does that really have on the ecosystem? Totally. And and I think just to build on that a bit on two on two points, I think one thing that is a 2020 like state for me, state of affairs is is that we have to look at these um, products and the impacts both sectorally. Like I think you get into the wicked problem thing, which is like, how does this operate in the transportation context or in the energy context, the water context, like, you know, security, whatever, whatever the context is. And then how does what's the interplay between and amongst those things? Like it really requires a nuanced assessment, because I think the, the, the sort of idea of regulating at the level of data is almost useless because it doesn't make sense. Like what makes sense in one context does not carry to the other, which is why I think we really have to set a floor rather than think about it as like, you can somehow regulate data. You can't like, I think you can regulate use and we need to get specific about use and what's permissible or not, you know, sectorally. But just as a second point on, um, on what you're saying, I think this is again, big opportunity for cities because I've been in the last year talking to state, you know, provincial, national, international policy tables. And you realize one of these really, really, problematic things right now is both opportunity and problem is all of this stuff that the, that these global communities are talking about is landing in the cities the hardest and the fastest like you can talk but the problem is if you look at where our legal expertise our legal you know a lot of money is and a lot of policy capacity it's at the other levels of government so we have this like kind of thrown off capacity and impact problem where it's like we almost need to borrow and move resources from other spaces down into cities because what the cities have an abundance of which is so good is that specific local knowledge about the people about the impacts about the communities about you know whether it's public health transportation parks like you can go down every space they know so much and they need to be brought to the front of that table to say like what do you need how should this work? Who will this hurt? Who will this, you know, who will this benefit? And bring staff with their full capacity, like really to the table um, to drive the conversations and the requirements in the regulatory spaces. But you see this sort of mismatch, you know, like it's like big opportunity and then like not enough capacity. And that um, I think that's like we have to get real about that challenge because otherwise we're just going to get overrun because it's basically the, the, the products land at the city level, all of all of the types of them. And so we, we have a mismatch there that I think we have to get serious about addressing um, because it's a big opportunity, but like you can't do it if you're not resourced properly. And I don't think many cities are resourced properly for, for what they are being asked to wrangle with on behalf yes. of other governments, right? Like it's just not, it just does not line up properly. That is the daily reality of the Office of Innovation here in San Antonio. It's, I mean, I wake up, my job is completely different every day because there is a new idea, technology, a new, you know, concern, a new reality, a new opportunity, and it's always shifting and evolving. I love yeah. this conversation. Me too. So we get to have more of it next week, and I'm so excited. Thank you, Dylan, for bringing us together to have, you know, the start of it. I just want to keep talking, but I know I got to wrap up. Stop. Huge thanks to Emily and Bianca for being on to talk about data. If you're interested in hearing more from them, uh, they're going to be at our City of the Future event next week in San Antonio. There's still time to register. To find that registration information as well as a full lineup, you can go to cityofthefuture.io. As for the rest of us, you can find our research and media at cprime.com. You can find us on social media at D.Y. Lockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at C Prime Research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.